Thank you so much, Colleen. Isn't that the gospel truth right there? Literally. Um, thank you so much. Also wanted to invite the, uh, our children, of course, through fifth grade back to Children's Church. And as I'm doing that, just a little reminder, you know, last week how uh, I told a joke that bombed so well. That's every week, preacher. I beat you to it. Um, but it was about how this is uh, God's favorite time of year because the Spirit never leaves. Well, I drove by another church this week, and guess what their church sign said? It said, fall for Jesus, he never leaves. So some kind of minds think alike. I'm not sure what kind, but there's a book out there somewhere of minister jokes. We just keep you know, stealing the same material from each other. But uh, today, we're going to move forward with... Uh, uh, more terrible humor? No. Going to begin with an illustration, literally. You know those giant maps that you encounter when uh, you walk into maybe an amusement park or um, uh, maybe a multi-level level motel, maybe even some hospitals or a conference center, maybe even a shopping mall if you can still find one these days? They're typically hanging somewhere fairly conspicuous, at these places, usually around eye level, displaying the different levels or storefronts, the areas of the building or campus you're entering. Your attention is being drawn to one part of the specific map, and what does it say on it? You are here. Look familiar? I'm not sure where this is. This is from. Karen found this for me, and it's just perfect. But this has a Nordstrom and a Macy's and Barnes & Noble and uh, JCPenney. Uh, this is kind of going out of fashion now, of course, but this kind of used to be the thing. You walk in, and this is what you would see. You are, you are here. And the map points this out so that you know when you get into that place where you are, of course, in relation to wherever you're seeking within that building. Maybe you're trying to find the front desk when you go into a place like this. Maybe you're trying to find the, the public restroom. That one's usually me. I'm usually looking for the restroom because I'm always drinking something. I'm that guy. Once upon a time, a popular stop on, on maps like these was the payphone. Not so much these days. You say payphone and kids look at you like, why would you ever pay for the phone, right? But once you arrive somewhere and you know you are here, having this visual can prepare you for how to get there, how to get where you're going. And, and especially if you never visited that venue, we went to the... Uh, what was it down at Battle Creek? I forget the name of the zoo there, but we went there. It's pretty good location. We wanted to see a giraffe or something. I don't remember now, but uh, it was, it, they had this, you were here, there, and it really helped. Now this morning, as we're going to continue in the second week of Roman with Romans, I think we're going to discover that interestingly enough, our scripture points to where we stand just like this on the proverbial map and says, you are here. No matter where we're coming from this morning, our text, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, I think it's going to stand out just like these big, bold letters on a campus map pointing our way. Well, let's jump in and just start reading the text this morning. Let's see if the ground that Paul covers doesn't look familiar. And remember, as we read here, that Paul is writing to this already established church at Rome. That's so important that we keep that in mind as we go through this together. Let's read. Verse 18 begins, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Let's stop there for a moment. If you were here last week, if you heard our introductory message on Romans, one word might still be stuck in your minds. Sums up what that message was all about. It's a word five letters long. It starts with the letter G. Do you remember? Just shout it out if you think you know what it was. Grace. The word was grace. We talked last week about God's grace. If you remember, this was our text. From last week, Colleen sang about the grace of God just a little bit ago. Now, last week, our text here, verses 16 and 17, they set the stage for the entire chapter of Romans, for this book of Romans, ultimately for the entire collection of books of our Bible. Again, they tell us all about the gospel message of grace. Well, the text we just read this morning goes on to explain, we're going to continue to read uh, how it explains, why we have such a need for God's grace. Last week, the text ended. This is where we picked up last week. Why must the righteous live by faith? For the grace of God, it says, because of the wrath of God. Because, folks. God is angry. God is angry. I'm just curious this morning about something. How many of you, if you were trying to invite a non-believer to come with you on Sunday morning, would say something like, yeah, Pat, you've really got to come to church with me and worship and learn all about my God. After all, he's really angry. I mean, that's not exactly a strong selling point for us, is it? Uh, But think about it, too. There's a reason why we try to keep moments that we're aware of, of friction, uh, maybe say in our marriages, for example, separate from our social lives. We don't normally say things like, Jim, the wife and I just want to make sure you and Gloria are coming over this evening for dinner. It's absolutely fine if you are, but I did really something stupid this morning to get the missus upset. We got into it. Now she's really angry. But hey, dinner at our house is going to be great. That's not a good selling point. That doesn't usually work, does it? Hopefully that was an exaggeration of uh, what went on that day. But let's face it, our anger is typically not something we like to parade about, is it, in front of other people. It doesn't give us that warm and fuzzy feeling. It doesn't... uh, seem to make us very inviting, uh, whether we're talking about our spouse or our Savior, right? Especially on social media, on Facebook, we like to pretend that we're always warm and friendly and likable, even when we're clearly not. I think sometimes we like to think of our God as the same way. But this is not really where we're standing in the proverbial mini-mall today, because God is angry. One author writes, one of the character qualities of God is his wrath. 
And maybe we struggle with that. Maybe we struggle with the idea that God is wrathful. Maybe we have a wrong idea of what anger or wrath is. We, we see wrath typically through the lens of our human emotions, our human anger, which is often sinful, isn't it? But please note, there's two kinds of wrath mentioned in the New Testament, and this is important. One of them is the Greek word thumos. I've got this on the screen behind me. This word thumos is from where we get the words thermometer or thermos, words that we use often today. And this kind of anger, this thumos is an uncontrolled, red-hot anger. Picture someone losing their temper and calling another person a wide range of profanities, and you've got thumos. This is the kind of anger which possibly comes to mind for us when we think of God being angry. But it's not what Paul means when he talks about the wrath of God. And that's a very good thing, because if God's anger was that of Thumas, I don't know if any of us would be here this morning. Humanity would have surely been wiped out thousands of years ago. But no, instead Paul uses the word spelled O-R-G-E, orga described by one commentator as a settled, abiding condition of controlled anger. Controlled anger. We are here today as recipients of God's grace, grace that Colleen sang about earlier, because of God's orga, or God's righteous, controlled wrath. It's an anger that is level-headed, it's calm, it's controlled. The wrath of God for each one of us in this room needs, it needs the grace of God, but it isn't so that we might offset the bloodthirsty desire of a maniacal, hot-headed, revenge-filled tyrant. Don't wake the sleeping bear. No, it is a patient, it's a sacrificial, it's a loving anger expressed by a holy God. Scripture says, and it's toward an unrighteousness that has afflicted God's people. It's an anger that has encompassed God's giving us, his people, a choice when it comes to righteousness, even though our choices have consequences. Someone has paraphrased C.S. Lewis, <clears throat> who said something once along the lines, there are two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and to those to whom God says, fine, have it your way. This is disregarding the grace of God in our behavior. And we're going to talk more about what this looks like shortly. Uh, here's a pretty picture behind me you can look at for a minute while I take a drink. How many of you enjoy this time of year? Uh, just go ahead and raise your hand if you're, you're a fan of this, this time of year. Almost everybody here is a fan of this time of year. I, I enjoy this time of year, too. And it's not that I look forward to letting go of the warmer summer temperatures, but I'm not sure there's a prettier time on the calendar to be out and about in God's creation. As I was putting in some miles this week, I particularly enjoyed the countryside out here uh, southwest of the church building, uh, maybe towards Stanton. Uh, some of you this week maybe noticed as well uh, when you were out and about, maybe even this morning on your way to the church building, the range of colors, just the colors that we see in the trees. Uh, 
out by uh, Tony's new place too. The golds, the reds, and the greens, that area especially because it's, it's, so, it's so thick out there. Uh, someone I talked to the other day was uh, going to take a color tour this weekend just to take it all in. And what a wonderful idea those are because it's almost as if God, the master painter, reworks his design every fall, right? And we can see it when we're out and about. And it's almost like he's just letting us know, hey, we are here. It's October. And we can see it in the nature around us that the seasons within creation are changing. What a pretty sight. And, you know, Paul says something kind of along these lines in the text as we continue here, verses 19 and 20. We can see God clearly in the creation around us and including us. Isn't that neat? Let's, uh, let's uh, continue on. Verse 19 and 20, Paul writes, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Wow, it's almost like going out and looking at the colors, right? Going out and seeing that God has been present. Now, I have a few atheist friends, and I love them very much. God loves them very much. And I've spent time here and there trying to argue such matters with them, you know, like there being absolute meaning in the universe. When someone says there are no absolutes, that's an absolute, just by the way. (laughs) Meanwhile, God's word says that if we can't just look around, if we can't look at nature, if we can't see the changing of the trees and the turning and the falling of the leaves, the beauty of the animals, and the necessity for bow season in central Michigan, can I hear an amen? If we can't see these things and acknowledge God, we're just not seeing clearly. We're just not opening our eyes. Every once in a while, I'll see a a post on Facebook that says something like, well, I experience God in nature, and I suppose that's biblical. But the Bible actually says, hey, we don't have an excuse for not acknowledging God, for seeing our Creator. We can plainly see God, the Creator, in creation. Nothing is here, including you, by accident, is it? Uh, One day this week, I actually uh, took a little bit of time. Uh, I pulled the car over. Uh, I was out in the country. I got out. I I just said a prayer, and I just praised. I thanked God, thanked him for willfully making this big, beautiful place in in which I live. I said in a little extra special prayer, uh, thanking him for uh, Central Michigan. I, I honestly did. Uh, It's a pretty area. What's astonishing to me is there are actually these individuals who claim it's all here by chance. Just got here. Just just got here. And Scripture goes on to say where this train of thought will carry us. Continue reading with me here. Verse 21. For For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And and this is just the way it works. If we disregard God, if we fail to recognize God, if we don't pay homage to God, if we refuse to worship God in the world he's placed us, Instead, we're going to regard, recognize, pay homage to, and worship someone or something 
in his place. And I don't, call it, I don't care if you call it the universe. I don't care if you call it humanism or the good of the common man. I don't care if you call it the government. Author G.K. Chesterton once said that once you dismiss the, uh, God, the government becomes the God. Uh, but God has created us to worship him. He actually made you and me to be godly, to be righteous, verse 18, and to recognize his eternal power, to recognize his divine nature, and to honor and give thanks to him in all things, not, sorry, not sorry, my atheist friends, or ourselves, or any other part of the world surrounding us. So you are here on planet Earth. Will you worship God or what he's made, asks our text. You know, it's interesting. I just want to spend a minute more on this this morning. Some people try to claim that atheism isn't a religion, that there are no objects of worship uh, with atheism, and that's the whole point. Uh, Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis writes, I call atheism a religion, and I immediately receive backlash from atheists who claim they have a, quote, non-belief. But what's their non-belief? He continues, it's a belief there is no God in all life and matter in the universe is just a result of nature. That's a belief. They, so they have a religion, a worldview through which they filter everything. And they have beliefs as well, he notes. Right and wrong are relative. Everything evolved by chance through random processes. The universe began, uh, began with Big Bang and more. And these ideas they accept by faith, a blind faith. Ham concludes, actually, theirs is a faith that completely lacks credibility. It's a bankrupt religion. And so, fine, have it your way. Have it your way. We've come to this point with our non-belief. We have. And unfortunately, what happens to us culturally in turn? This is what happens. Folks, you are here, and here are the results of disregarding God. I've spoken before on uh, the U.S. Supreme Court's June 26, 2015 decision overriding states' rights on recognizing gay marriage. If you haven't noticed, in just a short time, the culture surrounding has rapidly followed this decision. In 2001, 35% of Americans were in favor of same-sex marriage, only 35%. Today, those opposing same-sex marriage are in the minority at 39%. What happened? What happened? Church boards are now not only allowing homosexual clergy, ministers are being called out for their stance on the issue. Just this week, we've heard politicians in open forums threaten the tax-exempt status of churches who oppose same-sex marriage. You are here the ugliness of Planned Parenthood and those who endorse and promote abortion goes much further than legalized murder. This is an issue that we now know goes into profiting from the sales of body parts of aborted fetuses. This is happening. The Center for Medical Progress has helped uncover this. So when we disregard God, when we disregard God, we disregard life itself. It's what happens. It's what follows. And just as we see the seasons change around us, we can see events in our world and recognize them by what our God has permitted to happen. Fine, have it your way. Sin begets sin. And we can see it around us. And let's continue in our text. 
God said this will happen. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 25, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, what happens? For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Let's stop there for a minute. In the church, I think we sometimes misunderstand how the wrath of God and sin work together in this life. Sometimes uh, we, we, we tend to propagate, and this is taking place over the centuries, the notion that God somehow punishes me right here in the here and now for my sins in the here and now. As one author points out, back in the 1980s, on the onset of of HIV and AIDS, there were preachers convinced that this horrible virus was proof of of God's wrath against sexual sin. As early as September 12, 2001, a similar argument was presented. The atrocities brought on uh, by Osama bin Laden and the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, these were proof of God's wrath against nations and a world gone astray. And let's face it, each and every hurricane and earthquake that has plagued someone somewhere on planet Earth has received a similar diagnosis. Some of these uh, pseudo-preachers on pseudo-news programs with names like the Gospel Club will name each and every atrocity as proof of God's wrath against someone's sin here. But this doesn't sound like Christianity to me. This sounds like karma, and karma runs contrary to the Bible. You see, uh, Hebrews 9.27 makes it clear that God's judgment upon our current sin doesn't coincide on the timeline with that sin. That is, God does not punish me for what I do in this life. That happens later. The text says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It's important that we keep that in mind. Instead, the text today says God's wrath in the here and now our text allows, actually allows me, if I so desire, to sin further. To sin further. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Fine, have it your way. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Fine, have it your way. Verse 26 adds, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Maybe from where we sit this morning, friends, we we think somehow this text doesn't apply to us. Maybe maybe we're tempted to say, all this perversion, all this giving away to our lust, well, this doesn't seem to be happening where where I live, out here in my neck of the woods. We're all pretty straight-laced around these parts. This is God's country. These are issues for the cities, right? These are issues for Washington or for California. Do you realize that the state of Michigan is ranked number two in the country for human trafficking? Number second in the country, right behind Nevada, right after Las Vegas. There are more than 1.5 million cases of human trafficking in the United States, and since the year 2007, the National Human Trafficking Resource Center reports they've received thousands of calls from the state of Michigan. 
place we pay state taxes. You are here, brothers and sisters, and I'm not talking about Detroit or Grand Rapids. The dishonorable passions, the dishonoring of the bodies, this due penalty for our own error of human perversion is happening in Muskegon. It's happening in Port Huron. It's happening in Lansing. It's happening in Battle Creek. It's happening in Mount Pleasant. It's not exactly feel-good theology to note that God allows us to be as evil as we'd like, but it's Bible truth. God allows it. Ungodliness leads to unrighteousness in this life. Has anyone gone to Burger King lately and had it your way? I honestly don't remember the last time I went to Burger King and had it my way, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, when we hear have it your way, we, we, we think of this place. They, they probably own that phrase. I wish I could say that we, we, we got some kickbacks this morning. We're going to start sponsoring the sermons, you know. No, we don't. But um, The phrase have it your way has been God's very response to us first for thousands of years. Ever since we first listened to that serpent, instead of God our Savior. Yes, other kinds of eternal punishment will come later. But where do we stand today? Where do we stand today? Let's finish our text together this morning. You are here. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Does this sound familiar to anyone this morning? Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Does this sound like we're here? Let's continue. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evils, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Unfortunately, Paul, describing the very segment of the church, which not only fails to call sin what it is, but embraces it, finishes our text with this. Who's he talking about? Verse 32, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Who's the target here? Paul wrote this letter to the church. The vicious cycle of sin I'm talking about, it didn't come in a warning to unbelievers, to those who thought they had the truth, to those who thought they were, they were good with God. So I've got a challenge for us this morning, the challenge Paul has. Knowing where you, not an unbelieving neighbor, not a TV personality or sports figure or entertainer, not a politician, not somebody else upon whom we can pass the blame when it comes to the signs of the times, but you, me. Do you know where you stand in this world of sin as people of grace? And if so, will you resolve to bow and worship God and no one else? Worship God only. Will you, Christ Church, stay committed to godliness, to the righteousness communicated to us in Scripture, drawing wisdom not from the changing culture around you, but from the Word of God only? The question today isn't, why, why did we, the church, go from preaching against homosexuality to condoning it from the pulpit? The question is, why even draw the line there? At one church building in Toronto this very morning as I speak, there is not going to be one mention of God, 
during the entire 70 minutes of this congregation's, quote, worship. One journalist writes, Bibles are nowhere to be seen at the church. Their large steel cross, one of the few remaining religious symbols to be displayed, is hidden behind a cascade of rainbow streamers. But this is perhaps to be expected in a church led by an avowed atheist. To quote Greta Vosper, the minister of this so-called progressive 100-strong congregation, I do not believe in a theistic supernatural being called God. Now, friends, I want, to, I want you to keep this in mind. Having a non-believer leading a congregation didn't happen in this church overnight. Didn't just happen last Thursday. The slow decline began decades ago. What happened at that point? Church leadership agreed to begin ordaining women as ministers from the pulpit. This church's next progression was allowing openly gay men and women to lead ministry, ministries sometime after. And in 2008, this church opted to begin removing worship references to God and Jesus altogether because they were offensive to people. Hmm. Today, stripped of God, stripped of the Bible, outside of a, quote, source for critique, this church service instead focuses on, quote, human rights, with the governments of Syria, Saudi Arabia, and Palestine targets of explanation for the human condition. So perhaps Chesterton was right about what happens when we remove God. Governments become a God? Answers and, answers and causes of all of our problems? Or perhaps the Apostle Paul said it first and best, once you start disregarding God in the church, have it your way. He'll allow the whole world to come in instead. One author writes, We should never underestimate where the rejection of God's truth will lead us in the church. When we know the word of God and we live by the word of God, it protects us, protects us from his wrath. Mike talked about this a little bit this morning in Sunday school class. I'm paraphrasing, when we, when we free ourselves of God's word, we find it sets us free from God's protection. Fine, have it your way. From Eden to Toronto, God's people can only be right if we stand firm on God's righteousness. Only on God's righteousness. But perhaps we're struggling this morning to understand, how could a holy and righteous God who hates sin allow it among his people? To see it multiply even among those who claim to love him. Well, to answer that question, I'd like to close with the following illustration. This one's on loan, but I think it's a good one. Let's say you have a an 18-year-old son who, who's making a mess out of his life. Oh, can't happen, preacher. <laughs> Say you have an 18-year-old son who's making a mess out of his life. He's living wild. He's taking drugs. He's lying about what he's doing. And let's say this son still lives in your house. You're supplying the room and board. You have every right to go to your son and say, you're 18 years old. I can't run your life for you, son. But if you're going to stay and live in my house, you're obligated to follow my rules. And if you can't follow them, you can't stay in my house. Let's say you, you give your son this explanation one day of house rules. And then let's say your son turns around, ignores what you say, and walks out of the room, continuing to refuse to live by your rules. Now, this lifestyle your son has opted for, it's going to be the wrath revealed to him, right? That is, your son will no longer be under the protection and security of your house and home if you follow through. Friends, this is where you are. 
This is where we are today as the church, as sons of God. As a Christian, you are the walking and talking house of the Holy Spirit of God. You can look at our text today and you can see a small pointer to the world around us. Without the protection of God, for some it reads, you are here. You are here. These are the days you live in. If we so choose, we too can make our descent away from the Lord in unrighteousness. It's quite easy. But if we want to make our home, our Father's home, we're obligated to follow some rules, aren't we? We have to let our deeds show our direction. We can't claim to be wise as his creation, but instead hold fast to our creator. Where is Satan working? Right here. This is where he's targeting. From ancient Rome to modern Michigan, God reveals to his people the truth and says, you are here, do you know today, with whom 